0: i'm jenna ellis and welcome to just the truth podcast sponsored by the thomas More society which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life family and religious liberty you can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. society.org i am so excited for the treat that we have in store for you today with uh, talking about the constitution and civics we have all learned so much about the effects of our government and restoring the principles of liberty and our founding, probably uh, the most in at least my lifetime, if not in recent history uh, through this pandemic that we've been through uh, with President Trump trying to restore uh, the ideals of America's founding. And so today we are going to have a constitutional law class and a great discussion with my good friend, Dr. Robert George, who is professor of jurisprudence and the James Madison program director uh, in ideals and institutions at Princeton University. Hopefully I got that all correct. But Dr. George, thank you so much for joining me tonight.
1: Thank you, Jenna. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Absolutely. So you are uh, one of the most prolific scholars of the Constitution. I've personally learned so much from you and your expertise. Um, I love every time that we're able to have a conversation. And um, before we get into kind of the meat of the discussion, um, tell everyone a little bit more about you, your background, and why the U.S. Constitution and teaching the principles of our founding is so important to you personally.
1: Well, thank you, Jenna. Uh, I was born and brought up in the hills of West Virginia, right in the heart of uh, Appalachia, in north central West Virginia. Uh, I'm the grandson of uh, immigrants. Uh, both of my grandfathers were coal miners. My um, dad's dad spent his entire life working uh, on the railroads and in the coal mines. Uh, my mom's dad was uh, able to save up some money and eventually uh, get out of the uh, mines. Uh, I suppose I'm not in the mines myself today because of World War II. Now, I'm not old enough to remember World War II, but my father was drafted just out of high school. Uh, In fact, he hadn't even completed high school. The school later sent his parents uh, a diploma uh, to serve in World War II, to serve in Normandy and in in Brittany in 1944 in World War II. Uh, And as a result of that, he didn't end up in the mines because when he came back from uh, service, Uh, The world was different, there were new opportunities, uh, and he didn't end up working in the uh, coal mines, fortunately for him and fortunately for me. Those opportunities did not include the opportunity to go to college, so I was the first in my uh, family uh, to have that opportunity to go to to college. But coming from the sort of background that I come from growing up uh, in the hills, you know, hunting and fishing and playing bluegrass music, I'm a bluegrass banjo player even to this day, I love uh, playing bluegrass music. Um, I I have a keen sense of uh, the country of the United States as a truly exceptional nation, a nation that's remarkable for its social mobility, uh, a nation that has uh, welcomed welcomed immigrants, immigrants who have come here lawfully and refugees and uh, made possible for them lives so much better uh, materially and in many other ways in terms of freedom than lives that they would have had uh, in many of the countries from which they came. Uh, So, as you can imagine, I'm a patriot. Uh, uh, My my father served, as did my father-in-law and so many other men, to save the world from totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, So, I honor that service. I honor our military men and women and our veterans. Um, I believe in the country. I believe it's exceptional because it does provide such opportunities for people to rise in the world and to enjoy the blessings of liberty. The Constitution begins, it's very preamble, uh, with the purpose of the Constitution, uh, purposes of the Constitution. And those include securing for ourselves and our posterity, our children, and our children's children, and our children's children's children, <laughs> the blessings of liberty, and I've sure enjoyed those. So as a matter of gratitude, as well as other things, uh, I owe a debt to this country. Uh, and I love this country. And I love the principles on which this country are, are founded. There's the heart of American exceptionalism. It's the exceptional principles on which we're founded. After all, Jenna, we are not a nation that is knit together on the basis of blood or soil or throne or altar. No, we're a nation knit together by a creed, a political creed. The one that's articulated best, I think, and in, in, in first, In the declaration of independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We become Americans, no matter where we came from, Europe, Asia, Africa, wherever we came from, our families, our ancestors came from, we become Americans by embracing those principles. The principles of the declaration and the constitution of the United States, We're many different religions many different races and ethnicities, many different cultures with many different histories. But what ties us together, what binds us together, the principles around which we integrate ourselves as one nation, one nation under God, as Lincoln said, are the principles of the founding, the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. So it has been my vocation and my mission to articulate those principles, to explain them as best I can to my students and anybody else who will listen to me, as you know. (laughs) and to defend them. Because I I think not only are they our principles, they're good principles, they're true principles, they're the best of principles. It's really true that every member of the human family is created equal. There are no natural inferiors or superiors, no natural slaves and natural masters. That principle really reflects the larger, deeper civilizational principle articulated first in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible that man is made in the image and likeness of God. Every human being is a bearer of a profound, inherent and equal dignity. The declaration just gives political uh, expression to that fundamental moral truth about the dignity of all of us as human beings. And so our nation is a nation that's built on good, sound, true, solid principles. Have we always been faithful to those principles? No, of course not. We have deviated badly. We have sinned against those fundamental principles. From the very beginning, there was the sin of slavery. Sla- slavery was morally wrong and directly contrary to the principle articulated in the Declaration. And, and what an irony and we're that gonna Jefferson— have to,
0: We're going to have to take a break um, right here. I'm so sorry, but we're going to be right back to talk more about the principles of America's founding with Dr. George here on Just the Truth.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe
0: Continuing the conversation on Just the Truth with my good friend, Dr. Robert George, who is professor of jurisprudence and the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. And already, I hope you're seeing why uh, I was so excited to have Dr. George on the program tonight, um, because we're talking about the importance of America's founding, our principles that we so cherish. And Dr. George, right before the break, which I love law school classes because we don't have to take commercial breaks, um, and so. <laughs> we we like to uh, debate those things. I had so much fun in law school. I love law as a concept. I love that you're teaching uh, these principles to your students, to our next generation of lawyers and legal philosophers. And you were talking about um, America's principles and getting back to our principles and, and the truth that they're based upon.
1: Yeah, that's right. I was sorry to rattle on for so long uh, in that first uh, segment. I'll I'll try to be a bit more parsimonious. Uh, but I I ended by making the point that our principles are good and true, and we should be faithful to them, and we should never feel we have to apologize for them. Um, When we've gone wrong as a nation, and we have, from the very beginning, we went wrong with slavery. We embraced slavery as as a nation. The Constitution was a compromise between the Slaveholders, the people who supported slavery, and those who were uh, against it. Jefferson, the man who wrote the famous words that I quoted of the Declaration of Independence, was himself a slaveholder. There's a terrible irony uh, in that. But where we've gone wrong, it has not been as a result of excessive zeal for our principles. Quite the contrary, whether it's slavery, segregation, eugenics, today with the abortion license, where we've gone wrong, we've gone wrong because we have been unfaithful to those principles. It's a want of fidelity, not an excessive zeal for our principles that has led us down the wrong path when we've gone down the wrong path. We've never been ashamed of ourselves, Jenna, when we have been true to our principles. We've never been ashamed of ourselves and have no reason to be ashamed of ourselves as a nation when we have fought to uphold those principles, whether it's against domestic forces or against foreign uh, uh, forces when when we fought against the Nazis and the Italian fascists and and uh, Tojo's Japan, we did what was right. We were standing up for those core principles of American freedom. When we fought against the Soviet Union in the Cold War, when we stand up to communist China, we're standing for the right principles. There's no need to apologize for that at all. Quite the opposite, we can be proud of ourselves for that. Where we have gone wrong, we've gone wrong precisely because we failed to be faithful to our principles. So let's just be ever more faithful. But to do that, Jenna, I think we need to teach each new generation what the principles are. They have to understand exactly. it correctly. If Absolutely. we're going to ask them to stand for it, if we're going to ask them to defend these principles, uh, whether it's in, in argument or it's with force of arms, they've got to understand what they are. And I think here's where we've been letting the side down in education. Uh, our students do not understand, our young people do not understand very well the principles of um the American civic order, and we just have to do better.
0: Absolutely, and so in teaching those, um, you and I both spoke at a conference, speaking of West Virginia, uh, this weekend, and you were describing uh, what your students actually approach, and and they're obviously really smart to go to Princeton, uh, how they tend to approach our system of government and answer the question about our principles and how uh, we can best preserve freedom and liberty, uh, liberty and justice for all. And how there's kind of a misnomer and a a misarticulation and a misunderstanding in today's young people about what our Constitution is in context.
1: Yes, uh, that's right. So uh, maybe I shouldn't complain about this because it keeps me in my job. It gives me work to do. (laughs) But it's true that uh, our students on the whole, there are exceptions, but they're rare. Our students come in, and I'm sure this is true at most colleges and universities, not just at Princeton, with a really basic misunderstanding of how it is that the framers and ratifiers of the constitution and its amendments sought to protect liberty and to prevent tyranny. Uh, Clearly the founders saw that as their mission when they, against all odds, successfully prosecuted a revolutionary war against the greatest military power on earth, Great Britain, and overthrew British rule. And could now establish a country of their own. They had to make a decision about what kind of government to create. They could have created a monarchy. They had a very good candidate for king in George Washington, the best possible candidate for king, a guy who didn't want to be king. That's your best king, a guy who would return power more than once rather than just holding on to it. Wow, what a great candidate for king! Uh, but our founding uh, generation, our founding fathers, decided that they didn't want a king. They wanted a republican form of government and they wanted a republican form of government that would enable them to avoid jumping from the frying pan as it were into the fire replicating domestically here in the new united states the kinds of sins against liberty the kind of tyranny that they had experienced under uh, british rule so They designed a system of government, eventually settling on the Constitution. Originally, we operated under the Articles of Confederation as a nation, but pretty soon it became clear that they were inadequate, at least clear to most people that they were inadequate. And so those articles were replaced by a Constitution, and that Constitution later had, in very short order actually, had added to it a a, a Bill of Rights. So I ask my students when they walk in the door, and these are brilliant students, my gosh, the students we get at Princeton are off the charts, good I mean, valedictorians of their class, near perfect SATs, just brilliant young men and women. And they really want to learn, uh, their attitudes are great. Uh, but if I ask them when they walk in the door to my civil liberties course or my constitutional interpretation course, how is it that the founders of our country sought to protect liberty and preserve uh, uh, Republican government and, and avoid tyranny? They'll usually answer the question this way, Jenna. They'll say, well, Professor George, here's how they thought they would protect liberty and prevent tyranny. They would create a bill of rights, which included free speech and freedom of religion and the right to assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances and a right to bear arms and a right to due process of law and a right to legal counsel. They would create a bill of rights, and they would vest the authority to enforce those rights in a judiciary, a judiciary which was immunized by constitutional guarantees against retaliation from the elected branches of government, from the executive and the legislative, and it would be the duty and right uh, within the authority of the courts to enforce the principles that would protect our freedoms and prevent tyranny. Now, we do have a Bill of Rights, that's true. We do have a judiciary, that's true. That judiciary has come to exercise the power of judicial review. That is the power to enforce guarantees of the constitution. That's true. It wasn't clear at the beginning because the, as you know, Jenna, the the power of judicial review was not explicitly written into the constitution. Courts claimed it as something implicit in the constitution, but it's not there. You can look it up with the most powerful magnifying glass and you won't find it explicitly there. Uh, yet there was a debate and the side one that said, no, the courts should have it was Hamilton's side, actually, that the courts should have the power to review legislation for constitutionality. But nobody in that generation, including Hamilton, including the supporters of judicial review, believed that the principle or even a principle way in which liberty would be preserved and tyranny would be prevented would be by courts enforcing Bill of Rights style constitutional guarantees so if that wasn't it if that's the wrong answer and i can assure you that is the wrong answer even though it's the one my students come in with i don't know and, who and tells I think them the that. common
0: perception in culture is that like we like uh, to say right. i have a first, I mean, first amendment from right from... to freedom of speech so that guarantees right. my right yeah
1: that's right they pick it up from the ambient culture the new york times will tell them that their congressmen mm-hmm. will come to school and tell them that the uh you know they, they, they pick it up but it's wrong so if it's wrong then what's right What were the fundamental ways in which the founders sought to protect liberty and prevent tyranny and the correct answer, which they will learn as soon as they begin looking at what the founders actually say, In those wonderful essays we know as the Federalist Papers, the essays that were written by Hamilton and Madison and Jay to try to persuade the state of New York to ratify the proposed Constitution, they will see that the way the founders sought through this Constitution to protect liberty and prevent tyranny was by limiting power, limiting power, making sure that no one had too much of it and no one had unchecked power. So we have several ways, two really main ways, in which power is limited and checked under our Constitution. Uh, first, and Jenna, tell me if we're up against uh, our next break. Uh, we have about and I'll, two minutes. I'll interrupt this yeah. lecture. Yeah,
0: no, so continue. Uh, but uh,
1: the first way is this. Is this. The Founding Fathers decided that general jurisdiction, that is plenary authority to make law, the power that exists uh, in Parliament or through the queen in parliament, as they say in England, in Britain uh, or in the parliament in uh, uh, France, that general jurisdiction, that plenary authority to make law will not rest with the central government, what we call the, the federal government. Our federal government is not a government of general jurisdiction. It does not have plenary authority under our system known as federalism. People need to remember it. It's a very important principle. Under our system, the national government is a government of delegated and enumerated powers, not general jurisdiction, not plenary authority. That means, Jenna, that it only has the power to do things it has been given the power to do. It only has jurisdiction, as it were, over the specific areas given to it under the Constitution. Beyond that, the national government, what we call the federal government, has no authority. So where does general jurisdiction lie? if not with the national government, as in Britain or in France. Well, the founders thought to protect liberty will vest general jurisdiction, not in a central government that leads to tyranny, but rather in the states. The states, unlike the national government, are governments of general jurisdiction. They have plenary authority. They exercise what we know in the law as police powers, the powers to protect public health, safety, and morals and to advance the common good. So while the national government only has the power specifically given to it under the Constitution, the states have general powers. They have powers up to the point where the Constitution denies them powers.
0: We're going to talk more about uh, the powers and principles of government and making sure that we are still educating ourselves on the founding of American history, the, the genuine principles of liberty in our Constitution, when we come right back.
3: You can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around.
0: Continuing the conversation about American history and the fundamental principles of our Constitution and really of liberty with my friend, Dr. Robert George, who's a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University. And I hope that as you're watching this, you're seeing why this is so important in civics to understand who we are, where we came from, why our system of government is designed this way, and why conserving and protecting the principles that American history and our Constitution is genuinely founded on is so important for us to continue to preserve and protect liberty and justice for all as we continue this great American experiment. And, Dr. George, um, as we're talking about these uh, wonderful principles of liberty, um, you are just continuing to talk about uh, the Federalist Papers and why the ratification of the U.S. Constitution uh, was important for um, our, our founders and the authors of the Federalist Papers, all, all of whom were lawyers, by the way, uh, for them to advocate for the ratification of the U.S. Constitution based on its design.
1: Yes, that's right. And I pointed out that uh, to protect liberty, to prevent tyranny, the founders decided not to do what had been done in the European nations, which, which was to vest uh, general authority in the central government. Instead, they made the central government, what we call the federal government, a government of delegated and enumerated and therefore limited powers, and reserved general jurisdiction to the state governments. So the federal government only has the powers delegated to it by the constitution, that is by the people through the constitution. Whereas the states have general power, unless a power is denied to the states by the constitution, the states have it. And the power can be denied to the states in one of two ways, either exclusive jurisdiction over an area or subject matter can be given to the national government, in which case the states don't have it. Or you can have a specific prohibition, like a prohibition on states granting titles of nobility. You wouldn't want titles of nobility in a republic. Uh, We're not a feudal system. We're not an aristocratic or monarchical uh, system. So you don't want titles of nobility, you don't want states granting titles of nobility. Another example is the Constitution takes away, removes any power of the states to impair the obligations of contracts. You know, that might might be a good idea, it might be a bad idea, but the Constitution does forbid uh, the states from impairing those uh, obligations. I think it's a good and necessary idea. But my point is, that if it's not taken away from a state, then a power exists uh, in the state. So that's the first way in which by limiting power, by checking those who have power, uh, the constitution protects liberty and prevents tyranny. The second way is what we call the system of um, the separation of powers or the system of checks and balances. And that is even within the national government Uh, And the same is true, of course, for the states. But with the federal constitution, uh, we're talking about the national government. The national government is divided into three branches. The legislative branch and all the legislative power of the United States is vested in the Congress consisting of a House of Representatives and a Senate in the first article of the Constitution. An executive branch and the executive authority of the United States is vested in the president in the second article of the Constitution. And then the judicial branch. The judiciary in our system is not a uh, wing of the executive branch as it is in some other countries. We have an independent judiciary. The judicial power of the United States under Article Three of the Constitution is vested in one Supreme Court and such inferior courts as from time to time Congress shall obtain, uh, uh, ordain and establish. But even with respect to the so-called inferior courts, Congress has established appellate courts called the US uh, Courts of Appeals for the various circuits and district courts, the trial courts. Although Congress creates them and has some power to limit their jurisdiction, they exercise the judicial power of the United States as a distinct branch of government. So under our system, one of the ways we protect liberty and prevent tyranny Is by separating the powers within the national government, making sure that each branch is checked in the power that it exercises so that it cannot become tyrannical. And here, of course, we face the problem of judicial supremacy. Because if the courts are able to check Congress and the president, if the president can check by the veto power of the Congress. Uh, If Congress can check the uh, president, for example, by overriding a presidential veto or in other ways, who checks the courts? If the courts are understood to have the final and unquestionable word whenever they hand down a ruling and have the authority to bind permanently not only the inferior courts, if the Supreme Court has the authority to bind the other branches of government to the principle of its rulings, then you have unchecked power. Which is a pretty good reason to suppose that our, under under our Constitution, uh, judicial supremacy is a false doctrine. Nevertheless, it's one that's come to be widely believed. It was rejected explicitly by Jefferson. It was explicit. It was rejected in the most explicit possible terms by uh, Lincoln. If you look at Lincoln's first inaugural address, uh, he rejects it in talking about the case of Dred Scott versus Sanford, a case that uh, held the Supreme Court held that Congress lacked any authority to restrict or forbid slavery in the federal territories. Lincoln regarded that as a gross overreach of judicial power and the claim that it bound the national government, it bound the other branches of government, it bound the executive was a claim Lincoln simply rejected out of hand. uh, And as a matter of fact, he um, rejected it in practice by refusing to actually abide by it. Um, So when the system is working properly the different branches check each other, and nobody, not even the Supreme Court, has unchecked power.
0: And so when we're talking about this concept of judicial supremacy, because clearly we see an overriding, overreaching activist court today. And I think that's where a lot of people are very concerned uh, right now, for example, about Biden's commission on judicial reform and wanting a more activist court that will just rubber stamp all of the political whims of the currently Democrat-controlled uh, Congress as well as executive branch. And so what is the answer when you have uh, judicial supremacy as the prevailing interpretive theory of uh, Article Three and the Supreme Court's authority? What is the solution to that?
1: Well, we live in a very interesting time because for most of my lifetime, uh, liberals, progressives, as they now wish to be called, have been the champions of judicial supremacy. They wanted the courts to have as much power as possible. They loved what the courts were doing in the 1960s, declaring prayer in school to be unconstitutional, declaring pornography to be protected speech under the first Uh, Amendment, something I regard as utterly ridiculous, by the way, Uh, declaring a universal national right uh, to abortion uh, and so forth and so on. Liberals thought that was just great. Wasn't it wonderful that the Supreme Court is modernizing the country and handing down these progressive rulings? Doesn't matter that there's nothing in the text or, or logic or structure or original understanding of the Constitution to warrant these judicial interventions in our politics. Uh, Never mind that these constitute gross usurpations of the authority of the people acting through their elected representatives, liberals love judicial supremacy. Well, what happened? Because liberals don't seem to love judicial supremacy so much anymore. They're now worried about the courts. Well, what happened is, of course, Republican presidents were able to appoint many uh, constitutionalist or conservative judges uh, to the courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States. And now there's a chance that some of the Biden administration initiatives will actually be blocked by the Supreme Court exercising its power of judicial review. So all of a sudden, liberals, including President Biden, are saying, well, gosh, you know, we really need to rethink uh, uh, the power of the courts. Maybe we need to check the powers of the courts. Maybe we shouldn't have courts with unchecked power. Well, of course, I was saying this 30 years ago and 20 years ago and 10 years ago. But I was very lonely then. There were a few of us <laughs> conservatives in academia who were saying that, right. but we didn't. We looked around, you know, look this way, look that way, and there are no liberals supporting us and saying, you know, you're right. Unchecked power is a bad thing, and the Supreme Court and the federal courts have unchecked power under the judicial supremacy theory. So we should do something about that. Well, I, there was, no, there were no voices, none to our left, none to our right. But now, all of a sudden, it's liberals saying we got to do something about unchecked power. Now, I'm saying, yeah, you know, I've been saying that 30 years. It remains true. So let's think about it. But gosh, you guys are new to the party. And this certainly does look opportunistic. You didn't care about unchecked judicial power when the judiciary was working for you. Now that there's a so-called conservative or originalist or constitutionalist majority on the Supreme Court, suddenly you guys are worried about judicial overreach. Isn't that interesting?
0: Mm-hmm. And so so as Biden's uh, commission, and, and I've said this as well, Dr. George, that judicial reform has been something that conservatives have long advocated for. And so we can't abandon our principles in saying we always need to check power and make sure that uh, the judicial branch is restrained in its original context. Uh, But looking in just the last minute that we have here, uh, looking at what Biden wants to do in terms of packing the court and adding seats, that's just uh, trying to rubber stamp getting back to a liberal majority that will sign off on anything that they do. Uh, What is actually a better principle of judicial reform?
1: Well, the idea of packing the court is a grotesque idea. Uh, Biden used to recognize that. Uh, so did many other uh, liberal Democrats. Of course, the idea was floated uh, in a very opportunistic way, a transparently opportunistic way, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt when the Supreme Court was striking down some of the New Deal uh, social programs in the, in the 1930s. And it fell into disrepute. I mean, even Roosevelt's friends and supporters, even Democrats at the time, recognized that that kind of tactic would undermine the principle of judicial independence. It wouldn't, it wouldn't damage judicial supremacy, it would undermine judicial independence. It would, it would break down the wall between the judicial branch and the executive branch of, uh, of, of government. So uh, court packing is something we should oppose no matter who's proposing it. It seems to be liberals who are proposing it every time it was Roosevelt, now it's uh, supporters of, of President Biden, but that's got to be opposed. Now that doesn't mean that there can't be reforms. Uh, If we have a few minutes, I can I can talk about some. Do we Do we still have a couple minutes? Well, and so we'll go to a break
0: break now, then, and we'll come back and uh, talk about some judicial reforms that conservatives should advocate for. Because remember, we always want to be constitutional conservatives. This isn't about party as much as it is about principle and the ideas and the ideals that bind us together as Americans. And this is why civics lessons are so important. And I'm so grateful for Dr. George taking the time to give all of us a civics lesson so that we can continue in our own sphere of influence and our understanding how we can best protect and preserve our American experiment. We'll be right back.
2: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion
0: Welcome back to Just the Truth, where we're talking about the principles of liberty, our American Constitution, and its wonderful design, and also now judicial reform and what conservatives should be advocating for, not in an activist way, but in genuinely conserving our principles of liberty. So, Dr. George, uh, before the break, you were uh, going to talk about some of the ways that we can advocate for genuine and constitutionally permissible reform.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Jenna, the occasion of uh, this discussion or this part of our discussion is uh, President Biden's decision to create a commission uh, to look at the Supreme Court and the judiciary more generally and to um, explore the question of whether there should be reforms. My understanding is the commission is not supposed to actually make proposals for reforms, but to explore the uh, questions. So we'll see what they do. Uh, the Commission uh, has a strongly uh, liberal or or progressive majority, no question about that. But interestingly, there uh, are uh, some conservative appointees. Uh, uh, It's not entirely stacked with uh, liberals. One of them is my colleague here at Princeton, uh, Professor Keith Whittington, who's a well-known theorist of uh, originalism, the theory that the Constitution should be interpreted uh, to give effect to its original meaning, its original public meaning. Uh, another is Jack Goldsmith of uh, of Harvard Law School. Uh, another is Adam White of the American uh, Enterprise Institute. Um, but they are in a minority. I'm nevertheless glad they are uh, they are there.
0: So Biden can um, at least claim that it's bipartisan, even though they're in, that, they're in that's a right. And there minority. will be
1: some pushback. Uh, I I'm sure that if if people really want to seriously propose the idea of packing the court, that is increasing the number of justices on the court. So that President Biden can point uh, a majority for himself to uphold his programs. I'm sure that there will be some pushback, some strong pushback from uh, the uh, uh, the true constitutionalists like Professor Whittington, uh, who are members of the commission. So I'm very glad that he and the others are, are there, but they are in a minority. Um, so uh, let's look at the judiciary. First of all, what makes the law the law? is not an interpretation by judges or a choice by judges to interpret the law in a certain way. What makes the law the law is that it's legitimately made by the lawmaker. And this includes that body of law we know as the Constitution, our fundamental law, the law that establishes the terms by which other laws are made. Uh, What turns, let's say, the idea of due process or freedom of speech, uh, from being just a good idea somebody happens to have to being actual binding law is that it's legitimately made according to the proper process. In the case of the Constitution, it's the ratification of those principles by the ratifiers of the Constitution and its amendments that makes it law. And it's for that reason that we have to, if we're to be authentic, genuine, faithful interpretation, interpreters of the Constitution, if we're to be constitutionalists, we have to consider what they meant, the framers and ratifiers, ratifiers in particular, meant. What, in other words, the public meaning was, uh, taking into account what we can learn uh, about it from the, the framers themselves, what the meaning was. We need to give effect to that. That has to be given priority. But of course, it's also true that the, the law can, includes, uh, as, as any propositions do in the law's body of propositions, what is logically presupposed by the words on the page and what's logically entailed by the words on the play page. We lawyers uh, pride ourselves, Jenna, you as a lawyer know, in being trained in logic. Logical consistency yes. is a very important part of legal training. But it's a very important part of legal practice and a very important part of the interpretation of the law. Uh, Sometimes we glean the meaning of constitutional or other legal provisions by the structure of the Constitution or of an amendment to the Constitution or provision of the Constitution uh, or by the structure of a statute or part of a statute or by the structure of institutions that are created, for example, under under the Constitution. So we look to the text. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's not. We look to the logic. We look to the structure and we look to the original understanding. And I think we're right to do that. And we should resist uh, the effort to, um, to valorize the idea that judges get to make up the law, that uh, they are supposed to be giving us a quote, living constitution, uh, which is kept up to the time with the times by judges giving progressive readings to statutes. That's gone on for 50, 60, probably 70 years now. And it's just unfaithful constitutional interpretation. It's a kind of infidelity. That's an infidelity to the Constitution itself. So I think we need to insist on a proper, disciplined, and therefore uh, uh, restrained approach to constitutional interpretation uh, by, our, by our judges. Now, the Constitution also allows for Congress to limit, in some ways, the scope of what judges can do by regulating, for example, the, um, uh, the, uh, the jurisdiction of the uh, Supreme Court. And from time to time, Congress uh, can legitimately do that. It's got to be careful not to override judicial independence, not to abuse that power. But the power is there in Article 3, and it can be used. Now, if we look at possible reforms, well, one of the things we know is that when the Article 3 of the Constitution and the rest of the Constitution was framed and ratified, the uh, life expectancy of human beings was a lot lower than it is now. Uh, uh, People did not, uh, on the whole, tend to live for 80 or 81 or 83 or 85 uh, years. Some people did, they were very fortunate. Uh, But the average life expectancy was much lower, even if we take into account relatively high rates of infant mortality uh, or uh, maternal um, um, mortality and childbirth, it was low. So uh, we now live in a different era. So if someone is appointed to the Supreme Court at age, say, 45, Um, they can expect to serve at least 20, maybe 30, maybe 40 years. Now it's worth thinking about whether in this day and age, that's a good idea. So I think it's perfectly legitimate for a commission or for Congress to think about whether we should change the constitution, uh, or draft laws consistently with the constitution that would say limit how long someone can serve on the Supreme court. We currently have a system of life tenure. The, the Constitution says that judges and all the federal courts, uh, Article 3 courts, as we call them, uh, serve on good behavior. They can only be removed by impeachment and removal for high crimes and, uh, and, and misdemeanors. Well, maybe there should be an 18-year term uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, uh, maybe, there, maybe the idea of a life appointment, when people can live on into their 80s and, and 90s, is not a good idea. Maybe there should be a mandatory age limit. Those are all things that can be legitimately considered, you know, addressing real issues uh, without uh, necessarily undermining the independence of the judiciary. And,
0: and so they're very much unlike or- politics as well. I mean, because one of the things I love about this discussion, Dr. George, is that there are legitimate ways that we can. Uh, We can advocate for judicial reform that are genuinely nonpartisan. And that's where I think so many people get caught up in uh, what's the commission and automatically if it's uh, the Biden presidency, then we're against it. And, you know, if you're a Republican and if it was the Trump uh, administration that proposed such a commission, then it's Republican. So automatically Democrats are against it. And we tend to elevate politics over understanding that we all as Americans should be conserving our constitution and we should all approach this in good faith, saying there are ideas that we can come together on and genuinely think how can we create a more perfect union. And so we're gonna have to take one last break here, um, but I want to continue this conversation in uh, talking with Dr. George about um, not just judicial reform, but also conserving the principles of our constitution and understanding, because what I want you to understand here is why it's so important as conservatives to be all about principle over party. This should not just be fealty to one party over another because we should first and foremost be Americans. That's what President Trump means by America first. So we'll be right back.
3: I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know, I love Skims underwear. So I finally tried their bras and Skims has delivered again.
0: already in our last segment of the show this is why dr george teaches for an entire semester and i would love to have him back uh, to teach us for an entire semester because this i hope uh, people who are watching understand why uh, a deep dive into these things is so important not just for lawyers not just for advocates who go into courtrooms or uh, or advocates who are eventually going to be lawmakers but for every individual citizen we as we the people, Americans, need to understand our civic form of government and how we can best preserve and protect liberty and justice for all for ourselves and into the future. And so, Dr. Drew, just to wrap up this conversation, there's so much more we could talk about and we will. But um, in this last segment, what are some of the the most dangerous things that you see in our prevailing age uh, that are threats to liberty and how we can make sure to overcome them?
1: Uh, For liberty to be securely preserved, we need a climate that is conducive to liberty and its exercise. So let's look at our basic civil liberties, the ones that are articulated in our First Amendment, uh, and that are not just the province of judges to protect. All of us have a responsibility to protect them. Legislators have a role. Executives, presidents, and governors have a role. Ordinary citizens, folks like us, uh, have a role. Let's look at those liberties, the free exercise of religion, this is under threat in lots of ways, the effort to force religious people to do things contrary to their conscience or forbid them from doing things that their conscience requires them uh, uh, to do. We've got some big Supreme Court cases coming down the pike. The Supreme Court's been doing pretty well in this area recently, but it can't just be the Supreme Court, Congress, the state legislators, uh, legislatures, the governors. I uh, hope we'll get a president uh, soon uh, or eventually that will be uh, good on the religious freedom uh, issues better than President Biden, I think, is turning out to be. Uh, so we all have a role to play uh, here. Same with freedom of speech. Uh, we need in the country a climate in which people are free to speak their minds have opportunities to engage each other in the public square to present the best arguments they can. Yes, respectfully, if passionately, but freely and without fear of uh, cancellation or or retaliation or losing their jobs because they actually uh, speak their minds and make their arguments. All of us should be prepared to do business with any of our fellow citizens, to engage respectfully any of our fellow citizens who are themselves prepared to do business in the proper currency of republican discourse republican with a small r in other words uh, uh republican government um, that is reasons and arguments and and evidence but we don't have that today on the big tech platforms on facebook and on uh, uh twitter uh, and on instagram and with big companies like amazon we see a uh a spirit of authoritarianism uh, an effort to shut down certain opinions to silence certain voices make sure those voices aren't heard ryan anderson for example who's written a wonderful book on the transgenderism question called when harry became sally uh, that book which has been a bestseller has been uh, available for three years amazon suddenly announces it's not going to allow the book to be sold on its website this is not a bigoted book quite the opposite it's a work of, of science and philosophy, very careful, very thoughtful, well-informed, factual, uh, a great contribution to an important subject, and yet Amazon, using its tremendous market power, suddenly makes the book unavailable. Now you may say, well, Amazon's a private comp- company, they should be to do whatever they want, isn't that what conservatives are for? Well, one of the things all of us should be for, conservatives and liberals alike, is making sure that the best arguments and the facts and the evidence are available in the public square. And when you've got the kind of power, uh, economic and cultural power that a platform or a business like Amazon has, you know, 80% is what I understand of the um, online book sales and in excess of 50% of book sales overall, then a decision like the Amazon decision to effectively cancel Ryan Anderson and his book affects the free speech climate for all of us. It deprives us of access to information and of the robust debate that we need to uh, get it right when it comes to an important subject like whether children should be given puberty blockers or subjected to um, uh, surgeries because they experience uh, gender dysphoria. So in our colleges and universities, we need the same thing. We have a climate now of fear and intolerance where positions that uh, run contrary to the established orthodoxies on campus, to the woke dogmas, aren't allowed to be spoken. Uh, sometimes they're formally prohibited. More often, they're uh, informally prohibited because people live in such fear of being canceled or mistreated or deprived of future professional opportunities if they speak their minds. Well, you can't pursue education. You can't pursue truth-seeking research. You can't do non-indoctrinating teaching if we don't have a climate of openness, of freedom, A freedom of thought, a freedom of expression, a freedom of discussion, an atmosphere of climate and fear in which people censor themselves and won't even speak their own minds, maybe because they're afraid of getting a bad grade. Maybe they're afraid that someone will defame them or or um, damage their futures by saying things about them on um, on uh, social media. You can't run an educational system that way. We can't pursue truth. We can't encourage our young people to be lifelong learners. So these are genuine threats, I think, to the country. And they've gotta be addressed by all of us. This is not something that government alone can handle. There's a role for government. It's certainly uh, not something that the courts or the Supreme Court by itself can handle. There's a role for the courts. There's a role for the Supreme Court. The cases that are coming down the pike are very important cases for religious liberty and for freedom of speech. But that's only part of the solution. The whole of the solution includes the other branches of government, it includes state as well as federal government, and it includes each of us. And Jenna, the most important thing I want to say to all of your listeners and viewers today is this. Your part in this is to exemplify the courage to think for yourself and speak your mind. We need courageous, bold witness in the public square. And I say this to everybody, whether you happen to agree with me on an issue or disagree with me on an issue, have the boldness and the courage to get in there and speak your mind. Now, you should be open minded in the sense that you should welcome challenges. You should be willing to consider what your interlocutor, your debating opponent has to say. You shouldn't just consider yourself to be infallible and pontificate and lay down the law. That's not proper for any of us in a Republican democracy. But we need boldness. We need to stand up to the bullies whether they're in universities or in social media, will try to force us, intimidate us into shutting down our speech and not speaking our minds.
0: Absolutely. We need courage. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's it for this episode of Just the Truth. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about the Thomas More Society and the incredible work that we do there at society. And I will be back tomorrow and every Monday through Friday here on Just the Truth.